We're going to be jumping back into Esther. Today we're doing Esther 5 and 6 together because the stories really come together. And as we've been doing, I have one of our congregation come up and read the text. And so Joshua Zergis is going to come up and read the text. Please follow along in your app or in your Bible. Let's read Esther 5 and 6. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite of the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw the queen, Esther, standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast, And I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we many do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as we're we're drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king, grant my wish and fulfill my request. Let the, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out the day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman had saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he ne- neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then his wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it is found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who had guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about giving, having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. 
And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the, and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And, th- and it- then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Thank you. Oh, a story full of marvelous irony today. Let's pray and ask God to bless, bless his word. Lord God, we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us, to interpret your word, to reveal it and open it up to us, Lord. I pray that you would challenge us with your word and encourage us with who you are in your character um, as we study these two chapters, Lord. These are chapters that are inspired by you, that are in your holy word, and for us to learn and to live by. In your name, amen. This morning, we prayed for the persecuted church. And one of the things that you'll notice is we're still praying for the church. And you can say, well, that, that's, a, that's a bad thing, right? That the church is still persecuted. But think about it a different way this morning. The church, despite numerous attempts to rid this world of the church by different groups, by different countries, by different nations, the church is still alive. The church is still thriving and the church is still God's plan for this era. In the past, people try, have tried to wipe out the Jews. We see it in Esther. We saw it with Hitler. We see it throughout history, throughout the whole Old Testament. Again, over and over, people tried to wipe out the Jews, but no, they never were able to. Why? Because an almighty God is protecting them. Our almighty sovereign God has a plan, and nothing, nothing will thwart that plan. And that's a theme you're hearing us repeat over and over in Esther because it is the grand theme of Esther, that God is saving his people and nothing can stop that. The question is just who's going to be part of it, but not whether or not God will save his people. And really the big picture, today we come to a 24-hour period. We're at the heart of the story right before the salvation of the Jews. Not to give away next week, but we're at the, the heart of the story and we're seeing this conflict of really who's in control. This conflict of who is sovereign. Is God sovereignly controlling events? Is he 
implementing his plan that nothing can stop, or is King Ahasuerus, although he was just sort of weak, um, or is Haman the one that's going to control the events? Is he the one that is going to dictate what happens? And we have this confrontation, this battle of control over God and man, right? And, And when we think of man standing up to God and trying to control things, really at the heart of that is pride. Pride. I can do what I want. I will implement my plans. Now, none of us ever are control freaks like that, right? I will do what I want, when I want, how I want. And in fact, it, the only way it's going to get done right is if I do it. I can't even trust others to do it. I can't trust God to do it. And so that's one side of this battle, this prideful, arrogance, shaking a fist at God, trying to take control. And the other side, if we believe God is sovereign and if we believe he's in control, then we come with humble obedience to him. And we say, I will follow you. I will act because I know you're in control. I will worship you. I will order my life around you. I will love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength because you are the only one worthy. And today, as the stories come to this 24-hour period, big picture, God is saving his, his people. He is orchestrating events to save his people. But at the personal level, he is combating pride that the enemy has placed in Haman. He is combating the pride and the arrogance that fights God, that, that says wickedness is good. And we're going to see on display today the foolishness of wickedness, one of our, our four main themes, along with the sovereignty of God. And so we come to the text, and, and like I said, we're going to take chapter 5 and chapter 6 together, and we're going to look at these because they really tell one story of this 24-hour period. And in your notes, I'm going to give you all the blanks right up front. So that way you can just relax and enjoy. Four ways to remember this story, though. The first word is obedience. The second word is pride. Third word, coincidences. Fourth word, humbled. So obedience, pride, coincidences, and humbled. And those are going to be anchor words for us to understand this text, but also to understand what our response to God should be. And we're going to see each of the main themes in Esther all come to play in this story. The first word is obedience. And we have to remember where we left off in chapter 4. And in in 3 and 4. In chapter 3, Haman is just ticked off at Mordecai. Mordecai won't bow down to him um, for whatever reason, but probably because there was some deity worship involved there. Haman won't bow down to him, or Mordecai won't bow down to Haman, and Haman is angry, because how dare you violate my ego in that way? And we see the pride, and we we saw it then, and we're going to see it come to fruition today. And, And so Haman has this idea, and his pride is so blinding and so consuming that he says, it is not enough to take care of Mordecai. I'm going to kill several million people instead. And we're going to take out all the Jews. And so he convinces the king to make this edict to take out all the Jews in 11 months. He cast lots, remember? And he picked a day that would just be a good day to kill people and to wipe out a nation. And the edict went out to all the land. And last week we saw that Mordecai heard this and actually had done a lot of research. He knew all of the details, but Esther didn't know. And so last week was all about Mordecai letting Esther know. And and really, courage rises was was a good description of last week. And in the end, when Esther finds out and Mordecai uh, just lays out the situation for her, 
and says, this is your moment. This is the time that God has you where he has you to act. And so we saw her courage come to, come to fruition. Her courage rises. If I perish, I perish. I am going to obey God. And what a marvelous statement last week. And so now in this story, because this is just a, a wonderfully written story, in the story we're left with, okay, Esther has decided to act. She has decided to, to, to work on behalf of her people, to obey God. But how's this going to happen? How can this be? And that's where we come to chapter 5. And at the end of 4, she had just said, I'd like all Jews to take three days of fasting. And the implication is prayer along with that. We're going to take three days and together we're going to go to God and ask for wisdom and ask for strength and see what God does. And so we come to chapter 5 and in the first eight verses, obedience is the blank there. The plan courageously begins. And we see now three days later, the fast is just ending or it's at its third day and this time of prayer. And so we don't see a delay here of, oh, I'll act in like 10 months. We have 11. We're cool. No, on the third day, as soon as they finished with the time of prayer, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And a little bit of a tongue tie, right? Because you see throne, throne, royal, royal, throne. And the author here is, is illustrating to us that this is the moment of decision. She is coming to the king's court. And if you remember last week, the law of the land was you only came before the king if you were summoned. If you were not summoned and you came, that was a death sentence unless the king showed you mercy and tipped his scepter out to you. But this was the defining moment. And we see her dressing in royal robes and she, she takes off the sackcloth and she cleans up and she is, is, comes properly and she comes humbly and she's standing off to the side of the king's palace. And inside of the king, and they, and they actually, their, their architecture was so the king could see everything. And she's standing off to the side and she's waiting there. And do you feel the tension? Do, do you feel it? It's like, okay, what's gonna happen? Is this the end of the story and she's going to die? Is this it? Or is God going to act? How is he going to act? And we have this moment where she is standing there in courage and humility, obeying God, putting works to her faith. Remember, faith without works is dead from James. This is faith in action. And she's standing there, and as a reader, we're to pause at the end of this with all these words about throne and royal, and, and we're to pause because we don't know what's going to happen. In fact, some of the, the reliefs that they've uncovered, one of them that I don't have a picture of, was excavated, um, and it's a Persian king seated on his throne with his long scepter in his right hand, and he's extending it out, and an attendant is standing right behind him, and it's a, a median soldier with a large axe in his hand. And so really, it's a scepter or an axe. This is another one that has been, and you can see the, the scepter there. This one doesn't have the soldier with the axe. Stick, that's the scepter. And the king would have to hold that out to say, you have found favor, you may approach. Otherwise, the guy behind him with the axe does his job. That is the moment 
that Esther is choosing to obey in. And so this is courageous obedience, right? This isn't easy obedience. This isn't to to the junior high and high schools here. This isn't go clean your room. That's easy. Don't say it's not. It is. That's easy. But to obey with a guy with an axe ready to take your head off, that's courageous. That's courageous. And so this is just a, a, a serious game of Russian roulette. You never know what's going to happen because it's all dependent on the whim of the king. Is he in a good mood today? Does he like me? Or is he just tired of people and you're done? Another interesting fact, and I don't know if you remember a couple weeks back, we talked about when the edict was given. The edict was given the day before Passover. And so at this point, we are somewhere between three to seven, eight days uh, away from that. And so we are either in Passover week or at the end of Passover, where they celebrated sacrificing the Passover lamb for their salvation. And Esther stands there sacrificing herself potentially for the salvation of her people. Gives me chills to see this kind of courage. That's the story that's going on here. We go on to verse 2 out of chapter 5. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, we pause, and the next words are, she found favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And that was part of the the protocol of what would happen there. And then verse 3, And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? Literally, um, what is it to you? Or, or what would you want? And and so this is a, a statement of saying he's she's found favor and he is being generous. He is willing to be generous. And, and that goes on to say, What is your request? It will be given you even to half of my kingdom. Now, now, Pretty much everyone agrees that doesn't mean that everyone he granted a request to, he gave half of his kingdom to. Mathematically, that just doesn't work. This was just a common statement saying, you have my full favor, you have my full generosity. If I can do it, I'm doing it for you. Amen, right? This is God answering her obedience. This is God answering prayer. And so this, this now, we have a, a relief. He's, she has found favor. And so now the next thing she's going to do, right, is going to save the Jews. She's going to say, well, actually, there's this edict, and I'm a Jew, and, I, and, and Mordecai, some of the others are Jews, and, and you need to save them. And she's going to just ball in front of the king, and it's going to be great. But that's not what happens. Verse 4. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman... Come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And at that moment, we're like, what? No, no, save the Jews. Don't eat food. This this doesn't seem right. But I will say, as we look at this, this is a brilliantly wise plan that through prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit has put on her heart. And so... This isn't the place, this court, the the court of the king's presence with everyone around, that's not the place to present a request like this. It's not the time. She wants to ensure success. She wants to bring him into a more private setting to where he will listen and where he will hear. But she also invites Haman because she wants justice to be done. And justice will be done. I know, spoiler. And so she invites Haman. And she says to the king, come, come and eat. You know, the, the, the old adage that a way to a man's heart is through a stomach. It's not recent. <laughs> That's been for all time. Ladies, it's true. Just saying. Um, 
Susie's a great cook, and uh, there's a lot more of why I married her, but um, <laughs> that didn't hurt. <laughs> and so Esther invites the king and Haman and says, let's have a, a, a feast. Let's have a meal, a banquet together. This also, she's, she's just very wise. And part of the protocol of the time is you don't start with your big request of someone that's over you. You start with a little request and you build up to the big request. And that shows deference. It shows honor. And so she is coming humbly obedient to God and in a way that wins favor with the king. One other note, just notice in four, last phrase, come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. She was ready. She, she already has the food. They didn't just stick it in a microwave and, and 20 minutes later have a feast. No, this spent all, she, all, probably all morning preparing this. And she was ready to go. Then we go on. The king said, bring Haman quickly. It's food. Yeah. So that we, we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, and we, Pastor Andrew talked about this, King Ahasuerus tended to have issues with wine and make decisions when he was drunk um, to his folly. But here again, he, they're having wine after the feast, and he's like, oh, this is the time to do business. He says, what is your wish, Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even half my kingdom. Again, the generosity. You have my favor. So now Esther is going to share the problem, right? But no. She says, my wish and my request is, and the sentence in the Hebrew actually breaks off there. It's like this pause, and you can just feel it in the room. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, and she's showing submission to the king, she's, she's showing the, why she has earned favor, let the king and Haman come to the feast I'll prepare for them for tomorrow. And then I'll do as the king has said. Then I'll share with you the real issue. And so for, for a lot of different reasons, I think mostly through divine guidance, she says, come back tomorrow. I'm going to prepare a better feast for you. And she's earning favor. She's also bringing Haman in to where Haman doesn't suspect what's going on. But, but overall, as we'll see in the next two sections, I think this is godly wisdom that, that the Holy Spirit has placed on her because God has something he wants to do that night to prepare the king for the decision the next day. God's at work behind the scenes and she's sensitive enough to it to say, you know what, come back tomorrow for a feast. God is using Esther's courage to advance his plan. He's using the favor, the demeanor, the way she approaches life, the way she is around people. He's using that to advance his plan. This is human responsibility in the middle of God's sovereign plan because both are true. And Esther was courageously obedient. Even this section, I think we have to ask ourselves, okay, what does God want us to courageously do to advance his plan? Not to advance our plan, not to make my life better, but what does, where do I need to obey to advance God's plan? Am I doing anything to advance God's plan of discipling the nations for him? Or is there a way that I can obey and be part of that mission that God has left us on. Obedience is the first word. Second section, pride. Pride will be the rest of this chapter. Blinding pride and ego feed Haman's foolish rage. Blinding pride and ego feed Haman's foolish rage. We get to verse 9. So the meal's done, right? It's been a good meal. 
Haman's excited, right? Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He is thrilled. He has the honor of eating with the king and queen. He's the only one that's been invited. And in a culture of honor and shame, this was one of the highest honors he could receive. And so he's joyful and glad of heart. Giddy, one, one of the authors put. But giddy doesn't, I, just, I don't like that word for Haman. So, so if, I had to, if I had to put a word to it, and I was trying to think of, okay, what's a current relevant word to use for this? And um, to show how hip I am. And my kids say, you just proved you're not dad because we don't use hip anymore. And, um, so I'm going to use an old word. He was stoked. Okay? <laughs> and, and if you get that, you're near my age. And, and, um, <laughs> no, he was stoked. He was just down deep in his soul. He was as, as, as thrilled as he could be because his pride and his ego has been stroked. He's a proud man. And he's like, look at what I had. So he is on top of the world. And then the very next phrase, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor troubled before, trembled before him. So again, Haman's, Mordecai is still not bowing to him. Haman was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Again, the wrath is growing and the rage is growing. He has had what he thinks is the best day of his life. It's not. But he thinks it's the best day of his life. And he lets one man's action ruin it all for him. And that is what pride does to us. That is what anger that is not dealt with does to us. That is what bitterness does to us. We focus on that and it doesn't matter what else. And we are seeing the folly of sin, the folly of wickedness. Haman's flattered, but Mordecai ruins it. And that pride and anger is blinding him to what happens. It's controlling him. It is filtering everything. And it doesn't just do it for Haman, who's an evil man. It does it for us. Who are we angry at? Who do we hate sometimes? Oh, we don't use the word hate. No, we we hate sometimes. And it's sin. And those things blind us and we start to say, well, it's right that I should feel this way. And so as we read this, I find myself so many times in the day relating more with Haman and fighting pride than I do with Esther. And as soon as life is about us, as soon as I'm trying to control my life, as soon as my happiness depends on the honor I receive, the stuff I have, the circumstances I'm in, as soon as that happens... I now am faced with that happiness can be extinguished like that. And my life can be ruined like that because it has no foundation. We know this is true, right? You can give a presentation at work. You can can just nail the presentation at work, get all kinds of good feedback, and one person criticizes it. And what do you go home and remember? The criticism, right? That's a little bit of Haman in us. Because... We're taking our joy and our identity from that situation. And so let's see what he does. He goes home. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, which is amazing. He restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. He gets people together. He's got to process this. And Haman recounted to them. Now, he doesn't start with Mordecai. Listen to this. He recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king has honored him and how he has advanced above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman, now they all know all that stuff. I mean, this is, 
bet this was a fun conversation. We've been around people like this, right? You get together and it's just all about them, the stories. I mean, we're, we're looking at Thanksgiving and family gatherings. And I know you're thinking, who's going to be like that? But then he goes on and he says, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she's prepared. Tomorrow I'm invited again to get together with the king. Do you see how great I am? His wife's like, yeah, whatever. I, that, that, that's my, my interpretation. His friends, yeah, whatever. And verse 13 is what pride does to us, and it blinds us, and what our egos do to us. Yet all this, all this is worth nothing to me, Mr. Drama King, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. As long as that one man defies me and doesn't do what I want him to do and doesn't like me and doesn't honor me, all this is worthless. One guy is messing things up. And we see obedience versus pride between Esther and Haman. We see wisdom versus foolishness and where it leads. His wife and his friends who are his advisors they're like, okay, then take care of it. Stop complaining, take care of it. And, and I'm inserting some commentary there. Because it says, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Deal with it. Let's kill the guy. Be done with it. Don't wait 11 months. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Because basically he's saying, I can't even enjoy the meal tomorrow if I know Mordecai is still there. And so his wife is saying, okay, let's kill him which is really dark and cold. And she says, let's build a gallows 50 cubits high. A cubit is about 18 inches. So we're talking about 75 feet high. And the way that they hung people in Persia, it wasn't so much the rope and the noose like we think of. It usually was a long stick with some supports and a sharp end, and they would impale a body on it. And, and the, the goal of having it so high, and this could have been the height if you count on a building or on a hill, It could have been just 75 feet high, which would have been amazing. But really what it represented is the height of his pride. And and so the higher you made it, everyone could see. And so they could see this man who didn't bow to me and my greatness. He got his due. And so he builds this, this high, this elaborate out of his pride to humble Haman. And we're going to get to the irony there. Because the exact opposite happens. And again, just like King Ahasuerus, he foolishly listens to his advisors and foolishly listens to bad advice because it feels good to him. And, and you can see just how twisted it is with the then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Go kill someone and then have a good day. Man, he is so blind to how twisted and immoral and how wrong that is. But it says, the idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Keep in mind, this is the end of the day. And so they're going to work through the night to make these gallows. Such foolishness. And it, it asks us the question, where is pride blinding me? Where is hate festering in my life? What frustrations are controlling me? Am I giving them to God or stewing about them? Am I letting these, these circumstances, these people control me? Or, or am I giving them to God and saying, God, what do you want to do through this? Remember, it's an issue of control. 
If God is sovereign and in control, we can give it to him. If it's all up to me for my happiness, then this is devastating. And so we see the foolishness of pride and a vivid picture is coming of where that leads. So we get to chapter 6. And the next section, the longest section I call coincidences. And it's in quotes because they're not coincidences. Magnificent, God-given insomnia drives a reversal where pride falls. I could have listed a lot of things, but I love how God, at at the center of the story, the turning point of the story, what he uses is a guy can't sleep, an insomnia. And that drives this reversal, the irony, where pride is going to be dealt with. It's going to fall. It's going to be crushed all through a series of coincidences. Proverbs sixteen eighteen, a familiar verse says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That could be the title of chapter six. Right there, that proverb. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so we get the ultimate irony here. What is expected to happen doesn't and what isn't expected to happen does. And so, so we read this. Verse one, on that night, the king couldn't sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So when he's tired and can't get to sleep, he has someone bring a history book and read it to them. So those of you that fall asleep in your history classes, there's biblical precedent. (laughs) Don't fall asleep in your history classes. Uh, I think one of our pastors teaches history, right? (laughs) Um, Don't fall asleep in your history classes. But that's what he did. And the the, the eunuchs would, or or, and the scribes would bring in the the scrobes or possibly the stone tablets, and they would start to read the history, the chronicles uh, of his his reign, of what has happened. You know, and and it worked. It would it would help him get his mind off things and fall asleep. We all have things like that, right? I've heard some of you use sermons from Village Bible Church with your kids to get them to fall asleep. You're welcome, I think. Um, The wording here, though, is interesting. It says, the sleep of the king fled. And in fact, the Greek translation, which does have interpretation and some, some commentary with it, the Greek translation says, the Lord kept sleep away from the king. And this is the first of the, the many coincidences in the next few verses. He can't sleep. And God uses that. Verse 2 and 3. And it was found written how Mordecai had told, uh, had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? So this is that event five years ago at the end of chapter 2. Remember, we read about it. I said, this is significant. We just don't know why yet. God is going to use these seemingly random events. And so Mordecai overhears this. He's faithful and obedient and honors the king by sharing the plot. And so he, he spoils an assassination plot on the king. And the king now, five years later, is hearing this in, in a night he can't sleep. On the night that Haman is building gallows to kill the guy and going to go the next morning to ask the king to kill him, kill him, he coincidentally can't sleep. And he coincidentally asks for the history books to be brought in. And they coincidentally happen to turn to the part about Mordecai. And they coincidentally read about Mordecai, and the king says what's been done for him, because in in Persia, kings always honored acts of faithfulness. In fact, it was considered ungenerous or unbecoming to a leader to not honor that. And so the king here is is horrified in a sense, or, or distraught. We didn't honor him. He saved my life, and we didn't honor him. 
And so even coincidentally, the honor got left out five years earlier. There's a lot of coincidences piling up here. And as one author said, there is no way to escape the fact that all of these coincidences are directly speaking to the sovereign hand of God. He is in control. Now think about Mordecai for a minute. Five years earlier, he did something right for the king and was never honored. He was treated unfairly. He got dissed. But God had a plan. And God was going to use that because if he's honored five years earlier, that isn't an issue now and he gets killed the next day. God is working events that we don't understand that we think are horrible for his plan. And if he's sovereign, if we are humbling ourselves to him, we accept that and we do our best in humble obedience rather than what Haman did. There's just no mistaking God's hand. And so the king says, what honor has been given to him? And they said, well, nothing. We didn't do anything for him. Good job, Mordecai. You're in the book. And so the king here says, okay, verse 4. And the king said, who's in the court? Who's in the court? We've got to honor him as in the king's mind. Who's Now, it, it goes on to say, and this is where the irony is amazing. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that had been prepared for him. Who's in the court? Haman. Why is he coming? To ask the king to kill Mordecai. What's the king about to do? Honor Mordecai. Isn't this cool? And... and, and I've been wrestling. I've told some of you, I've been wrestling. Do I take glee in this? But we don't want to take glee in the downfall of the wicked, but we do celebrate the justice of God. And we have to suggest that we're going to celebrate the justice of God. That's where we're going to go with this. And, and so Haman comes in. He's there early. This is still late night. And Haman's there early to get in first on the king's agenda and get this done and get this guy killed. And the king, because... God used insomnia. Can you believe that? Insomnia, God used it. And the king is ready to honor Haman. Now catch this. Haman comes in. He, he doesn't even have a chance to share what he wants to about Mordecai. They're, but they've both been up all night thinking about Mordecai. Just in different ways. Verse 5. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here, standing at the court. King doesn't know Haman and Mordecai have this rift. Okay? Haman's his second in command. He's like, perfect. This is going to really honor Mordecai. Haman is there standing in the court and the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, king gets to talk first. King said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, where does Haman's pride and ego go with this? It's me. It's me. I got to go to dinner with the queen. We're doing it again today. The king is going to honor me. He can't promote me anymore because I'm already second in the kingdom. But he's going to honor me and he's asking me what I want. This is amazing. And so his pride takes this to extremes and he's going to ask for the world. And he has no clue. What should be done? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And we see how ego and pride blinds us to the truth. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, because that gives them the authority of the king, if they are his actual robes, and the horse that the king has ridden, 
and on whose head the royal crown is set. We're going to put a, a, a crest on the horse. The king has ridden it, and if someone else rides it, that is passing on authority. This is a power play. And Haman's like, I'm going to get the power. And, and then he goes on, and let, robes, um, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. So, so he says, take one of your nobles, have them dress him, have him get him ready, and then lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman says, give him everything, give him power, dress him, and take him through town so everybody sees how great he is. This is going to be great. It's going to be the second best day of my life. Maybe even the first if this goes well. And then we have verse 10. <laughs> I'm, I'm just amazed at the vanity we see the, uh, coming into this, that he thinks all this is about him. Uh, again, aging myself a little bit, you're so vain, you probably think the song is about you. <laughs> if you've never heard the song, look it up. Um, Carly Simon, is that... Um, <laughs> Doesn't that fit? <laughs> That's Haman right now. He thinks it's all about him. And we see the folly of wickedness. It's one of the themes of Esther. And in verse 10, everything changes. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. What is Haman thinking at that point? <laughs> we actually don't know until a couple of verses later, but... Man, his heart just had to be crushed because his pride is being crushed. And that's what God does when we live in pride. He will orchestrate circumstances to crush that pride because he hates that pride. It is an act of defiance against his sovereignty, against his authority. And so he, in his justice, is crushing Haman's pride. And so the king knows Mordecai is a Jew says, hurry, take it, do so to Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. That's a great plan. Go do it for your mortal enemy. Verse 11, what can Haman do? His life is on the line. So Haman took the robes and the horse. He dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And we see the major shift in this passage. And he does it. He has to. We're going to find out in the next two verses his response. But he has to do this. And we see that God is protecting Mordecai. So he's saving his people. He's also saving an individual. Does Mordecai even know that he's going to be hanged the next day? No, he's asleep. Even while he's sleeping, God is awake and acting and working on his behalf to save his life. And that's one of the lessons we have is God is always watching. He's always protecting. The memory verse today, Psalm 121, 3 and 4, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber, because he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Village, I don't care how bad this last week's been. God sees. And God is watching, and He is working. We may not see it now, and one of the warnings here is it doesn't mean he's going to work in everything like I want him to. He works for his glory and our ultimate good. We can take that to the bank every day. His glory and our ultimate good. And that's what's best if we humbly submit to him. 
It doesn't say he's going to work for my wants this week. And to give me everything I've ever desired. But it will be for my good. And it will be for his glory. He is working. Don't let Satan tempt you to believe anything else. Because that's truth. The other thing we see just through all those, those circumstances is God is at work in your life in every little event. Every little event. He's working in your life with where you went to school. He's working in your life with where you work, how you got your job. He's working with how you heard the gospel. He's working with who you met and when you met them and maybe you married them. He's working in where you live. None of those coincidences are accidents, but they are direct ways God is working in your life and wants to use you for his purpose. Just one other side note of this section. Don't discount um, insomnia. God uses sleepless nights. And for us, this is just a side thing, but for us, if you have a sleepless night, think, what might God be doing? Who can I pray for? Who can I write a note to? What can I read in his word? Don't waste insomnia. And I'm one that struggles with insomnia. And I do put on TV shows sometimes to fall asleep. Vin Scully is magnificent for that. Not because the Dodgers are boring. His voice is just sweet. But maybe next time God has you awake, ask him, why, why do you have me awake? What do you want me to do? Last section, and I do need to end. It's just a, a couple short verses. The word humbled. The aftermath and the warning. Pastor AJ will get into this and, and from here on a little bit next week. Humbled, the aftermath and the warning. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. We don't know anything about how he's feeling about this honor. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. He is devastated. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Thank you? No, now interesting here, they're the ones that had the idea, now they're distancing themselves from the idea. And that's, that's what wicked counselors do. They're saying, oh, no, you, you went down that path, you're going to fall, this is on you, man. But what's interesting here is this is a warning. This is a warning to, to Haman. They are, they are speaking truth to him that if you go against the Jews, if you go against the hand of God, you will fall. And to me, this is, it's a warning, but it's also a picture of God's continual grace in this. God could have struck Haman dead here, and, and I won't spoil the rest of the story. But instead, God gives him a warning and a chance to turn. And we don't, we don't, we don't see a direct altar call right here but we see that he's experienced the folly of his pride and he doesn't change. And they know, they know if you go against the Jewish people, you won't win. You won't overcome them. They probably know about the history in Egypt. They probably know about Hezekiah and the Assyrians at Jerusalem where 100,000, 150,000 Assyrians are, are dead in the morning. They, they know about this people's survival through exile. They're like, don't go against him, them. There's a sense of justice here, but a sense of grace, a sense of warning. Warren Wiersbe says, when God sounds the alarm, it pays to stop, look, and listen, and obey. 
Village, two chapters, 24 hours. Pride versus dependence and obedience on God. Which will it be? Which will it be? And I challenge you, think this week, how am I like Haman? Don't just say, man, I'm like Esther. I'm so good. That's Haman, by the way. (laughs) How is my pride blinding me? And then think, am I trusting that God is working in every situation? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. The challenges from your word. Lord, I pray in my life that you would root out pride, that you would stamp it out, that you would crush it, even if it's painful, so I can be a willing tool for you, an obedient servant ready to be used for your glory and our ultimate good. Lord, help that to be what we're about. We love you. We worship you. We praise you in your precious name. Amen.